0: movies entertain entertainment leads to emotions those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film and that is
1: why we exist to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit
0: because every movie makes us feel something welcome listeners to another episode of the feeling film podcast i'm patch and with me is my best friend and co-host aaron what's up y'all This week, we go back to West Texas, talking about the 2004 biopic, Friday Night Lights, chronicling the 1988 high school football Permian Panthers, go Mojo, and their journey to a state championship. (laughs) Aaron's shaking his head. I don't know why. I would like to know
1: why Mojo is their rally call or whatever, because I don't get it.
0: A little trivia. Back when, I want to say, when the school was first incepted, uh, or in the early days, there was a a rallying cry that I don't remember what what the actual rallying cry was, but it sounded like somebody yelled Mojo, or I think somebody said Gojo or something like that, like there was a player or something like that, and somebody translated it to Mojo, so that became a thing. All I know is, Aaron, I cannot find on any websites that endorse the school, the team, the football program specifically, that has mojo on it. It's all just Permian High School, Permian Panthers. The only place you can find mojo hats is on a website called iCollector, and it's not even available. You know, it's hats from the movie. So I think they were made up. I don't think mojo was made up, but I think the hats were made up. There's no actual hats that have the word mojo on them for that's for the school.
1: I kind of want a Permian Panther hat now that you've mentioned that.
0: <laughs> well, I would go for an, a, a Dylan or an East Dylan hat before I get a Permian hat. That's where my Wife, my, my my loyalties lie in East Dillon Lions. Is that that's where the, your wife went to high school, or what? No, it's the. Never mind. It's <laughs> it's part of the TV series that you've yet to watch, and hopefully we can rectify that in the oh, next yeah. several months. But that's a whole different conversation that will probably not come up tonight.
1: Okay, I bet it will <laughs> several times, but that's beside the well, point.
0: Whether it does or not, <laughs> this is going to be a fun conversation. But before we get into that, we got a couple of announcements, and Aaron, why don't you uh, let us know about those?
1: Alright, well first up is we are going to reveal our recently ranked MCU. So the Facebook group gets together every once in a while and we do these group rankings of different series. And we did an MCU one back in 2018 around April, but we wanted to revisit that now that the Infinity Saga has wrapped up and see C- what the group thinks uh, about the MCU as a whole. And so we decided to tie a little bit of a contest to it. Everybody that submitted their rankings got put into the hat, and we drew uh, someone to award a Letterboxd Pro membership. And the winner of that is Mr. Tony Feagan. So congrats, Tony. He's already a Pro member, but we have extended him by a year, so that's awesome. If you don't use Letterboxd and you're a listener to this podcast, just know that it is a site that we... Absolutely love. Our Facebook group uses it very, very frequently. We all like to log our movies, write our little reviews, and make tons and tons and tons of lists. We will rank anything and everything you can imagine when it comes to movies.
0: It's such a great thing to watch Facebook post come up when somebody says, Hey, has anybody seen this movie? What do you think? And then like 15 people just link to their Letterboxd account with their individual reviews.
1: Yep, absolutely. It's a great spot if you are not a film blogger or a film critic. And you just want to put down a couple paragraphs. That's what's great about letterbox. You literally can write a few sentences with your quick thoughts on how you felt about a movie, or you could write an entire, you know, three page worth essay. And it's, it's just a great site for finding all of that, you know, feedback about a film. So we highly recommend it. Um, it's great to have them as a partner sponsoring the show by giving out these free memberships when we do these contests. But the MCU ranking, so I'm going to go through it real quick, Patrick. We don't have to spend a ton of time on this, but I do want to hear what you think, if there's anything you drastically disagree with or are surprised by. Number one, our group picked Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Um, pretty good with that. Myself, numbers two, three, and four are Avengers Infinity War, The Avengers, and Avengers Endgame. So that trilogy. Number five is Guardians of the Galaxy. So... Based on those top five, I think it's safe to say that our group loves a team-up, and that is pretty consistent there, four out of the top five. Number six is Iron Man. Number seven, Captain America Civil War. Number eight, Spider-Man Homecoming. Number nine, Captain America The First Avenger, so all three Captain Americas are in the top nine. Number 10, Black Panther. Number 11, Spider-Man Far From Home. Number 12, Thor Ragnarok. 13, Ant-Man. 14, Avengers Age of Ultron, 15, Thor, 16, Doctor Strange, 17, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, 18, Captain Marvel, 19, Iron Man 3, 20, Ant-Man and the Wasp, 21, The Incredible Hulk, 22, Iron Man 2, and 23, right where it should be, Thor
0: the Dark World. (laughs) No love for Thor the Dark World. Not even for me. I won't even give it that. But
1: <laughs> Jeremy Jeremy was about to kick entries out because someone had a Thor the Dark World ranked in the top ten, and he was like, no bueno. That's not no. going to cut it here.
0: That's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> Any of that surprise you in a big no, way? Not, not really. I mean, I think there's love for Cap, and it was surprising enough because you got got the, the pioneer of the MCU being Tony Stark, and... It's clear that, that Captain America as a character and his movies were all solid. I don't know that any trilogy in the in the series between Iron Man, Thor, Captain America, I believe that was the those were the only three that had their own. Every entry was just really solid. I don't think I could say the same thing for Thor or Iron Man. they were, they were good. But I think Captain America as a character evolved the most consistently. And his movies, I think, are three that you could watch. Granted, you'd be missing a ton, but I think even on their own, you could watch them in succession and enjoy the arc of Captain America.
1: I would say the same thing about Iron Man, but um, I am an outlier and I think Iron Man 2 is very good. I thought that this ranking was perfectly indicative of the reactions I've seen in our group over the years. So nothing surprised me. At all, to be honest, I thought maybe Captain Marvel might be higher than 18. But honestly, that's the problem with the MCU is that you have so many really good films like they're all super enjoyable. And so it feels like you're putting something really low. But in reality, it's still a really great movie that you would happily rewatch
0: over and over. As I as I think about college football right now and rankings and the arguments about why are we looking at rankings three weeks in and we should be having rankings happen after like week four, week six, which I'm a definitely a proponent of it would have been cool. This wouldn't have happened by any stretch of the imagination, but it would have been cool if somehow Disney Marvel studios would have said, here are all the movies that are going to be coming out. And what do you think they're going to be ranked? It would be really interesting to see which ones would actually make the top of the list, which ones we actually have moved What surprises me, what would surprise me, or not surprise me, strike that, reverse it. What wouldn't surprise me is seeing some of the mid-tier characters that we've grown to love because of the historical success of the MCU being as high as they are. And this is not a shot at Black Panther as being a bad movie because it's great. It's in my top 10. But I don't know that you would have expected Black Panther at the beginning of all this to be in the top 10. And I think that's a testament not only to Ryan Coogler and the cast and the story, but also to the presence and the power of the MCU as a whole.
1: I would completely agree. I actually did an exercise this year that is sort of that very thing. Someone, I think Becky Watkins in our group, um, one of our listeners, uh, turned me on to this idea. I made a letterbox list of my most anticipated movies of 2019, and I ranked them, and I'm going to go back and look at the data and see what is the correlation between where I ranked them in anticipation versus what I gave them star rating wise after I had seen them. I'm really, really curious to see this data because I can already tell you some of the ones at the bottom of that list are like my favorites of the year. And some of the ones at the very top of that list are not. <laughs> so it should be really cool, I think, to do that exercise. And maybe I'll report back on it during our year episode. Well, the other announcement we have before we get into Friday Night Lights is September's donor pick episode has been chosen. The group voted. This month, it was all about the rom-coms. And we are going to be talking about, about time. <laughs> and one of the best responses to the voting email that we send out, someone responded and said, about time, And I was like, wait, are you saying like it's about time that we did rom-coms or are you saying it's about time, the movie, like clarify, please. (laughs) It's just one of those titles that you can't necessarily say without context, but I'm super excited. This is a really good movie and our listeners, at least in the Facebook discussion group, really enjoy this one. They talk about it all the time. It comes up frequently. So I think it's going to be a good conversation and people are going to enjoy that. And then to go along with that, we will have our bonus content episode for September on why we love rom-coms. Joining us will be Aaron Hundley for all of this stuff, as well as an episode at the end of the month on When Harry Met Sally. Uh, If you want to be a patron and vote on these movies each and every month that you can help pick, uh, you can do that by uh, joining patreon.com slash feelandfilm and becoming a supporter as low as a dollar a month.
0: Well, we are officially into spoiler territory. So you have been warned, do yourselves a favor, watch the movie, enjoy it as much as we did, and come back for the conversation. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm anticipating that at least. I don't need predictions. It's going to be good because this is an amazing movie. I'll go ahead and say it right now. If this doesn't make the trophy room, I quit the podcast. I'm saying that on on record. (laughs) This needs to be in the trophy room. You're
1: putting pressure on me, Patrick. As as a performer, I do not feel comfortable with the amount of pressure that you're putting on me.
0: Do I need to duct tape your, your mouth or something? Oh and my say, gosh. You didn't do that?
1: I feel like you're yelling at me to like throw the damn ball or something at this point.
0: Just don't knock over any lamps when you, when you do the podcast in the future. <laughs> now, in all seriousness, everyone, this is one of my favorite, if not my favorite... Well, it's not my favorite sports movie. I mean, Rocky is definitely right up there. But I watched this movie with so much joy in my heart. I think from the very beginning, watching the opening credits, watching how we get introduced to the Permian Panthers and the way in which the soundtrack builds to the moment of like preseason. I watched this with my wife, who's from West Texas. She's from a small town. In West Texas, it's not Odessa Permian. It is a small town just outside of Lubbock called Abernathy. But she is all too familiar with this school, with their rivalry with Midland Lee. She's actually been to Ratliff Stadium. And so I kind of feel like I'm married to a half celebrity here. Now, she didn't go to a game. It was for a band competition. But she got to march in Ratliff Stadium, which is which is pretty amazing. So it's, it's really fun to watch with her because she's essentially telling me, yep, that's true. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's really important. They love that. And even some of the aerial shots, when we see just nothing but flat, she goes, babe, you know about that (laughs) because I've been to West Texas and it's nothing but flatland. But I watch this movie. And every time there is just something about it, that gets my my emotions going. And this is coming from someone who, yes, comes from a small state, a southern state, but it's not West Texas. And seeing the success of this movie coming from the book by the same name, which I've actually ordered and I ordered the 25th anniversary that has a lot of fun stuff in it. I'm excited to read it and also spawning a fantastic TV series. I don't know that there's a movie in the sports room that comes close to making me feel what I feel about this. So that's my disclaimer. Anything after this is going to be just fun, happy, happy, Patch is gonna be in a good mood when he finishes this episode. Okay. So I'm gonna go ahead and hand it off to you, Aaron. Let's go with one more takeaways. Go for it.
1: All right. Well I you know, following that's gonna be tough. I I will say this, (laughs) I watched this for the first time, I think, two years ago, which is disappointing to say the least, that I'd never actually watched this movie. And I was floored by it immediately. Uh, I took up watching the TV series. I told you we were going to talk about it multiple times. Um, and I didn't finish it because, well, that's what Aaron does. Squirrel. Not <laughs> squirrel. Yeah. Your, your example is spot on. <laughs> um, I binged a bunch and then I was like, Oh, new next thing. And so I would love to get through this series with you, not for the podcast or whatever, just for my own enjoyment because I know that I would love it. But anyway, the movie floored me. Here we are talking about it now. I love the fact that it is. Based off of the same exact book as Varsity Blues and that we have these two distinct stories, both of which I really enjoy the telling of and how they do them. Um, So anyway, my one more takeaway, Patrick, is heart. As in, oh my god, my poor heart. Um, For a movie slash series that coined the term clear eyes, full heart, my eyes sure were not clear, for the last 20 minutes or so of this movie. And at times, Patrick, I literally was outright sobbing. I really believe that this is something of a special marriage between story content and director style. Uh, Peter Berg's approach is often criticized, but I think that it works like a charm in Friday Night Lights. I feel like most films have more dialogue or more drawn-out moments of drama than this one. But something about Berg's documentary-like tracking with the cameras, he zooms in on facial expressions and the eyes, so much pain, fear, sadness behind them, and his emotionally driven way of shooting action scenes, all of that gets me connected to these players and coaches in a way that I actually find really surprising by the end. I don't feel it coming, and then before you know it, I'm just an overwhelming bucket of of emote. And so this story, seeing all of the heart involved uh, in the director, the actors, everybody that put this together, and the characters themselves, what comes out of it, it just generates a ton of emotion in me, which is what I love about going to the movies. We're on Feel and Film here. I think Berg's respect for this material shows big time. And because this movie forgoes the more comedic, tone that varsity blues approaches the same material with this one is able to hit me right squarely in the feels, And so it's all about heart.
0: Yeah. And that was one that was on my radar to use my one more takeaway passion was another one. I know that I use pressure for varsity blues and that's pretty applicable to this as well, but I'm going to be tongue in cheek, but also I'm going with my heart and I'm going to say this movie is perfect. And Anytime you deal with a biopic, there's always going to be something in the back of my mind about, okay, what did they change historically to make this movie? I don't know that there have been a lot of biopics that stay completely true to their source material. And so the curious guy in me decided to look some stuff up. One of the big deviations was that, full disclosure, Permian did not go to the state finals that year. They did play Dallas Carter and lost in the semis. 14 to nine and Dallas Carter went on to win the state championship and subsequently actually had that take that taken away from them because of some cheating violations, but that's a different story altogether. But the major points of the, of the story and the way in which I can completely connect with it are applicable to the historical facts. We have the loss of an important player. We have this, pressure of a town to see a perfect season and what happens when that perfect season gets tainted with a couple of losses the crazy unreal tie-breaking scenario of a coin flip was all part of that and then finally the journey through the state championships to that battle with Dallas Carter all that stuff happened Obviously, you have a little bit added to it to help kind of give yourself a beginning, middle and end. Because if I were watching this and I saw Dallas Carter beating Permian in the semis, that doesn't feel very climactic. And so I understand the reasons why. But I don't really care because the things about the movie, the things about the story that mattered to me actually happened, which I think is what made it perfect for me. There weren't any made up elements that I emotionally gravitated towards that we're trying to fake me out like oh we want to make them cry here so let's add this and watching these characters watching these people live their lives over the course of three months and seeing it quietly just escalate into this moment of this final game for permian It made me sad because I was on this journey with them. And I think what Peter Berg does really well as a director is he grabs you early on. Something that I I mentioned just a few minutes ago was that opening sequence. I'm watching Mike Winchell at his kitchen table. His mom is just quizzing him on these passes. And you see these shots of his feet just bouncing. He's nervous. He's anxious. He's ready to go. You see the next shot of Booby Miles running all out Rocky Balboa with these young kids behind him, idolizing him. Love,
1: love, love that shot.
0: And what you're getting is a picture perfect capture of what West Texas football is like. We talked we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with J.B. Huffman about that authenticity. And I think it's unfair to say this is better than that because there is no right or wrong in this. There's no Friday night lights is better than varsity blues or varsity blues is better than Friday night lights. They're both telling different stories with similar elements. If I could make a comparison to the two, I would say you have varsity blues is kind of your rock and roll action football movie that captures those exciting moments of what it's like to be an idol, to be a God in high school and the pressure of what that means, Friday Night Lights is a lot more quiet. It's a lot more documentary style, as you mentioned, with the handhelds, the quick jumps into close-ups, and lots of quick cuts back and forth that makes you feel like you're filming this and trying to capture as much information as you can. And I think that's by design. I think what Peter Berg is doing is he's saying, this is real life. And I want to make sure that the people that have never experienced West Texas football life can feel like for a couple of hours, they understand what it is.
1: Yeah. I, I would wholeheartedly agree with you. And I almost piggybacked and stole your word perfect when I saw it in the document. I was like, man, that's great. That's so clever and so true. I, I think when you're talking about Peter Berg though and why this works, you're hitting everything and. I think it's one of the reasons that I love sports stories and, in general, stories like this that Peter typically makes, and that's because they're inspiring. You see people, everyday people, everyday heroes of some kind, whether they're military, whether they're law enforcement, whether they're sports – and you see them giving their all for something that they love or care about that's the common thread and whatever that passion is it could be saving someone it could be defending freedom you know what I mean Like it, it, I still think Only the Brave is a Peter Berg movie every time I watch it it's so similar to his style of film but you always see blood, sweat, tears in their lives you see the, the rawness the the pain and the pressure and the the problems that come with being committed to whatever it is that they're committed to. And I think he captures that like no one else does. And that's what makes Friday night lights special and irreplicable. I don't know if that's a word, but it's not, you can't replicate it (laughs) is what I'm trying to say. And that's why we haven't seen anything quite like it otherwise. And why it stands out as being so perfect.
0: Something else that he does really well is he really makes you feel that exhaustion of being that passionate about whatever it is. There's a great moment with Winchell where after he, I think it's after the Midland league game, he makes that pass and it's just over the, the hands of his receiver. And there's that quiet locker room in the next scene. And you just see him just banging his head up against the wall, crying emotionally. And you're, you're in there with him Cause you're like, Oh man, I wanted that so bad for you because they were fighting. And this wasn't even the championship game. I think when you have moments like that, that don't necessarily overshadow each other, that's some really great direction. That's great editing. That's great cinematography. That locker room scene really helped me understand how everyone in that room was feeling and how they all responded to it. Winchell took to basically beating himself up, literally. Others looked exhausted. They had just been fighting and fighting and fighting. And even when you look at Coach Gaines, he's exhausted too. And he understands his players enough to not say anything more than what he needs to.
1: That's a very important scene. And there's multiple scenes like that throughout this that make it really special, in my opinion, because it reminds us of these pieces of football as fans, we don't see this. Okay. We see what's on the field and then we go to commercial break (laughs) or the movie ends. The game ends. My team lost. I'm pissed off. I threw my hat. I changed the channel and I turn on a video game or I turn on a movie or I go eat dinner or I go on with my life. But this is what's happening to the people on the field that didn't get the job done. Right. And so, we see both sides of the emotion in this film so well, and I love that because it helps keep, it helps me keep perspective too. Like when I'm watching football as a fan, anytime I see this movie afterwards, I feel like I'm a little bit more attuned to this, and I realize that okay, maybe I shouldn't go as crazy when that guy misses that ball because guess what? He's gonna have to deal with that emotionally, and it's so much more than the video game like eyes that I'm watching the sport through on my TV.
0: There's always backlash. There's always a response, whether it's positive or negative. The radio call-in shows that really just matriculate throughout the movie help elevate that. Look, you and I were from Arkansas drive time sports. I will tune in at four during either after a big win or a loss by the Arkansas football team just to hear some of the responses from folks. And partly I admit because it's hilarious because it's just good old boys getting a chance to basically drivel on about why they're frustrated. I And this is why I respect guys like Dan Patrick. He'll have people call in and he'll say, thanks for your call. And he'll have his producers cut them off. Like they're not on there to give their whole armchair quarterback commentary like these local call-in shows do. But that is what it's like, where you have guys that just – they get the microphone, they get their phone up, and they're like, all right, here's what – I'm going to give my two cents. And I think there was one guy that said, these guys suck. They just suck.
1: Oh, they're – yeah, like in real life or in the movie? In the movie. Yeah, there's one guy that calls in and says, they're doing too much learning in schools. Exactly. (laughs) It's taken away from their ability to play football. And like, they, they're dead serious, man. You know, and like, there's an, and there's another one's like trying to run coach out after two weeks. Yeah, like two like, losses or whatever. They're like, the, get rid the moving of them
0: signs. Yeah, the moving yeah. signs on the lawn. So there's, I mean, there's a lot toxic. going on here. It's it's just it, it is toxic. It's absolutely toxic. And I think it's famine or feast. It's blessing and curse when it comes to football life for a number of people, not just for the coaches, not just for the players but you're talking about the wives. You're talking about the parents of the kids and Friday night lights really does do more than just highlight these pockets of relationships. I think it does a really great job of fleshing out at least four types of people or four characters, if you want to call it for this narrative that allow us to see a little inside look at what it's like to live in West Texas in the role that you're in. And as I was thinking about this movie and how are we going to walk through something like this, we've already covered a lot of the things that we would talk about from Varsity Blues about the pressure and what it's like to be a star quarterback and have the fame and what it's like to be a, a manic parent <laughs> wanting your kid to be successful. What I wanted to do was to look at these four individuals that I believe the movie focuses on the most. You got Coach Gary Gaines, Boobie Miles, Mike Winchell, and Don Billingsley, which all four of these guys are phenomenal actors. Three of them are you know, more well-known in recent years than than the fourth. I And when I look at these four stories, how they interact with each other, but more so how they... Work themselves out how the arcs of these four characters start and finish. This is why I love the movie. Because I could watch this four times, to- I've watched this more than four times, but I could watch this four times at least and focus on one of these relationships and want probably an entire story centered around one of these characters and their relationships with the others. An entire movie about Coach Gary Gaines or an entire movie about Booby, or an entire movie about Mike or Don. I think all of these are important. And Peter Berg is very intentional with these four characters because I believe he's saying life in West Texas and life specifically in West Texas football is one of pressure. It's one of a lot of pressure. And I want to see how each of these guys deals with it. And I think, the is it Bissinger Bissinger yeah the the author I'm anxious to read the book because I wonder if this is what he did and if that's the case then I'm going to consider myself at least a halfway genius the learning in school that I did hopefully paid off because I think when you see how this works and you focus on these four individuals you can see what the pressure does in different ways and in similar ways but it's such a great character study in the life of these four actual people. So I wanted to start with coach Gary Gaines. The movie opens up with some radio commentary and we find out that he's making a little bit more than the principal. And one guy even says, you know, I don't care if he makes a million dollars, if we get an undefeated season, pay the man what, what he wants. I assume that this is his first year coaching. I had to do a little bit of research. The movie doesn't really it's not really clear on that, but in actuality, I think this was his third year coaching at, at Permian, but it doesn't change the fact that maybe he recently got a raise. There is that kind of pressure. And as a head coach, he's got to handle this in a certain way. And so I wanted to start the conversation by asking, how do you see him handling that expectation of, of having not just a winning season, but an undefeated one in this case.
1: Well, I can't imagine it. First of all, there is so much on this poor man and the way in which he can't do anything without, or can't go anywhere without someone trying to tell him how to do his job. Patrick, I would lose my mind. I would be in jail because I would have attacked people at this point. I don't have that kind of patience. I don't have the ability to withstand that. I get annoyed when people try to tell me what my job is and I do admin work, you know, and it's rare and, you know, trying to remind me how to use a copy or something as if I didn't know. But to have people just want to walk in my office and tell me how to, to play football and what actual strategies to use, to be at a dinner party and it to be completely overtaken by a conversation about people's opinions on what he should do telling him how to win, what he's going to have to do. Old players coming in, acting like they have a stake in what he's doing in the here and now. It is an unreal amount of pressure, and no amount of money is going to alleviate that pressure. I mean, sure, it's great to be comfortable and not have to worry about money. to takes that off the plate. But it broke my heart in there's a quick shot and scene where we find out that they've lost a couple games, right? And the daughter just says, Daddy, are we going to have to move again? And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, that's the culture we're talking about here, the pressure he's dealing with. He's got to go somewhere else. You There's only, like, one team to coach in a, in a certain area, right? So your job doesn't exist in multiple ways, typically, in this sports world. You've got to go somewhere else. And if you get run out of town because you didn't do well enough, your whole family is going to be susceptible to that. Um, I think... He handles it incredibly well. Um, like, goes back to that inspiring thing. The scene in the locker room where he tries to cheer them up after Boobie's injury and is rallying them, and you can read it all over his face, man. Everybody in that room knows he's lying, but there is an understanding that you're going to be the rock, and you're going to be the guy that's going to stand up there and fake it. Even if everybody else, so everybody else doesn't have to, right? You're going to allow those guys to have their emotion and you're going to stand there and pretend that everything's okay. And you're going to try to motivate them and, and tell them it's going to be all right. And the way he walks away, you can see it on his face. Like, man, I just, I, you know that he doesn't believe it, but he's got to exude that confidence to them. And it's really hard to watch. And I just, I love this character, Patrick. I love him so much, and I think that that's one of the brilliant things about the movie, is that, it's like I said earlier, it's not a character that we have 30 minutes worth of drama scenes with. We get very small moments. The scene where he calls Mike, or not calls Mike, but after Mike is worried about his mom being sick, and he asks his siblings to come home, and Coach goes to see him at his house, that's another one. That, like, This is how he deals with pressure, right? He says very distinctly to him, he just says, can you get the job done? And I love it because he's spinning his championship ring while he's having this conversation with Mike. He says, can you get the job done? And he says, now I'm going to assume that by now you've learned that the world is not fair. And sometimes you get the short end. That's all you get. And if you don't do something personally to fix it, that's all you're ever going to get. It's amazing. Like his advice is very to the point. He puts responsibility on the players and he gives them the understanding that he's going to be there. What I believe a coach should be. He's going to give them instruction. He's going to support them. But ultimately they have to make the decision. They have to put in the work and it's motivating. And he tells them, he says, you, you've got to accept the fact that people have to take care of themselves regarding his mom being sick. And then he says, and that includes you. The truth is, against some overwhelming odds, and you think he's about to, like, kind of knock Mike, he says, if you do decide to accept that offer to go play college quarterback, you're going to seriously fly, son. And I mean, like, I'm motivated. I'm like, man, you're not giving me this fake, rah-rah, overly, you know, sweet, syrupy message about how amazing I am. It's one simple line. You're going to seriously fly, son. And I believe him in that moment. And I think Mike believes him in that moment. And by telling him that in his home with his mom there on his couch, I think there's a level of comfort and level of closeness that comes with that relationship wise. Um, and I just I think he handles pressure amazingly and he handles it for his guys by taking it on himself and also trying to teach them how to handle it better themselves.
0: So you mentioned a few words in there that I latched onto coach teach. I don't know if you said mentor, but i picked it up. And this is where I think Gary Gaines as a character can do all three. He has the ability to motivate his players in a way that they can understand He does it because he understands who they are, because he's gotten to know them. It's interesting to watch that scene that you brought up when Booby tears his ACL, he gets the information, and the shot, it's beautiful. The shot tracks. It just follows him. His face goes from somber to a fake smile. He goes, He's gonna be fine. No tear. He'll be back in a week. And then he starts saying, Mike, game ball goes to you. Fantastic. Hey, you did that? Great. And he's just pointing out people. The shot stays on him. He turns around and his face goes back to that somberness because he has to be that guy. It's not being fake. It's being a voice and a face of stability because there are what 45 players on that team that don't know what's going to happen. Their anchor is gone seemingly. And he has to be able to not rally the troops, but to make sure that they are sustained in that moment. You see him on the field there. Krisha pointed out when Billingsley's dad comes down and basically manhandles him, throws him to the ground. The camera cuts over to Gaines and he doesn't do anything. And she's like, no, that wouldn't fly. You don't do that with you know, a head coach would never let that happen. And I looked at her and I said, this is before I knew if he was a first time coach, but my opinion still stands when you're in an environment like that and it's normal for parents and other people around town to be watching the practices and you know, the kind of volatility that exists between players and parents and family and how intense this is. I've got to believe that gains in his own way, was protecting Billingsley because for him to step in would have caused a lot more drama would have caused a lot more for him. Billingsley would have absolutely gotten just not berated, but just whipped when he got home because, and he didn't need coach coming to his defense. He needed to defend himself. He needed to be able to eventually stand up to his dad. Obviously that didn't happen. And the way it played out was he and Booby get into a fight. It's played so well because these scenes are intercut with interviews with reporters and Billingsley says, yeah, we've gotten the brotherhood thing down pretty good. And it cuts back to them just wailing at each other. But that's just part of being a team is, and I think that what Gaines does really well is he allows his players to be players to work out their problems on their own. It's not a means to say that he doesn't care because obviously with Winchell, Winchell doesn't have a dad. And so without intending to he steps into that role that conversation in mike's room gosh it was it came this close to be my connecting point because again it comes down not only to script but also to shots as Gaines is flipping around his ring the camera cuts and what's winchell holding on to a matchbox car here's a guy who has winchell who we're gonna talk about in a little bit but he has so much pressure on him but yet he's playing with something from his childhood, something that gives him joy, something that is very innocent. He's still got matchbox cars. He's in high school. Who has that? To me, I think there's some metaphor going on there, some metaphor playing where we see a guy who's trying to hold on to his childhood, trying to hold on to what was fun about the game, and he's being given this speech, this conversation by a coach that's saying, it's up to you if you want to take the lead on this. I believe you can fly, not touch the sky, just fly. I think you have the ability to lead this team, but you have got to want it. You have got to do it. To me, I think that's a lot different than, if you want to contrast that with Kilmer from Varsity Blues, who uses his players as a means to an end. At no point in Friday Night Lights do I ever see Gaines being selfish about his players, overusing Booby Miles. The only reason Booby went back into the game before he got hurt was he because he lied. Well, this is before the oh. the initial one. Right, because, because somebody come, else did. Yeah. Because somebody Good else yeah. helmet. Yeah. He's so like, gotta find your helmet, dude. And of course it led to, to what it did, but he I think he has the ability what what he does well is he gives the responsibility back to the players. He says, what do you think? As opposed to being a dictating coach that says, this is what you're going to do. Now there are times when he needs to do that because that's when he needs to be a coach. But when he's, but when he's a mentor, when he's someone who says they need guidance, I step back. I'm a little bit more quiet. And to me, I think that's what makes real leadership happen is when you can balance both of those out.
1: Yeah, I agree. And by the way, I think that he's flipping that Matchbox car for exactly what you were the reasons you were suggesting, but also maybe because it's a Fast and the Furious reference.
0: Could be. He's he's (laughs) he's channeling his inner drifter. (laughs) He goes on to be DK. (laughs) Football didn't work out, so he goes on to be DK. Yes, he does. That's that's what's that stand for? Donkey Kong. Anyway, (laughs) Draft King. Draft King. Draft King. Oh, my word. Not so much. He played for Baylor. (laughs) (laughs) He did. (laughs) Kind
1: of played. Not really. But he went to Baylor and sort of was on the team.
0: (laughs) I think we're loosely trying to connect these universes, and it's not quite working out for
1: us. Anyway. Anyway.
0: One other question I had before we move on was, going back to my one-word takeaway, Gaines uses the word perfect quite a bit. And that could be a whole conversation about what does it mean to be perfect? But I wanted to ask you, what do you see as his definition of perfection? How does it affect the way that he coaches?
1: Well, I'm going to read this speech. Uh, It's pretty short and wasn't able to grab a soundbite of it, but this would be a connecting point contender as well. There's so many in this film. He says this, he says, well, it's real simple. You got two more quarters, and that's it. Now, most of you have been playing this game for 10 years, and you got two more quarters. And after that, most of you will never play this game again as long as you live. Now, y'all have known me for a while, and for a long time now, you've been hearing me talk about being perfect. Well, I want you to understand something. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. It's about winning. I'm sorry, it's not about winning. It's about you and your relationship to yourself and your family and your friends. Being perfect is about being able to look your friends in the eye and know that you didn't let them down because you told them the truth. And that truth is that you did everything that you could. There wasn't one more thing you could have done. Can you live in that moment as best you can with clear eyes and love in your heart, with joy in your heart? If you can do that, gentlemen, then you're perfect. I want you to take a moment and I want you to look each other in the eyes. I want you to put each other in your hearts forever, because forever is about to happen here in just a few minutes. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to think about Booby Miles, who was your brother. He would die to be out there on that field with you tonight. And I want you to put that in your hearts. Boys, my heart is full. My heart's full. This is really intriguing to me, Patrick, because for one thing, again, we compare to Varsity Blues. It's... Hard not to, especially when we just talked about it a couple weeks ago. But in that film, it's the quarterback, Jonathan Moxon, that gives the equivalent of this speech. This there's two quarters left, you're gonna give it all, and you're gonna leave it out there on the field. And if we do that, we can be heroes. It's the version of what the speech is being given by the coach. And I find that interesting that we are using the coach here to give the wisdom versus in Varsity Blues when the coach has been turned into a villain. I'm really curious, by the way, to find out what the actual story is like, which is I'm assuming that Kilmer was just a fictitiously made villain um, based on what we know about story and coach gains. But it's it's an, it was an, a change, right, to make it that rock and roll, to give it a conflict that made it more spicy. But I like Coach Gaines giving this speech and talking about perfection. Of course, you know, it leads to this clear eyes and love in your heart portion that we took away from it. But it's the same thing that Jonathan Moxon is saying, essentially. He's saying, can you live in the moment as best you can? And I think that's important because his definition of perfection includes the best of your ability, not the best of somebody else's ability, not the level that 18,000 fans think that you should play at, not what your mom wants you to accomplish or your dad or your cousin. It's what you can do. Give your best. That's all that matters. And that if you do that and you do that with love and with joy and you enjoy the game, then you're being perfect. And that's your version of perfect. And I think that's really important. Um, And I think for these guys, it's, definitely super motivating and he understands that and he knows that it's not just about this game you know he says at the beginning it's not about winning it's about you and your relationship to yourself and your family and your friends this is mentorship like you said this is about how do these guys learn a lesson from this experience that not only hopefully motivates them to go out there and give their best, and maybe we win a football game, but also to make them put them in a position to where they will make better decisions throughout their lives because of this moment right here and now. And that is what Coach Gain cares about more than anything, and that's what makes him a great coach.
0: Where Gain succeeds is in the fact that he doesn't reach for the future. He doesn't say not to conflict with Moxon's speech, but he doesn't say, well, no, he he consistently says, this is it. This is what you need to focus on now. But he doesn't try to make a broad speech about this is going to affect your future, even though it probably will affect their future. He has this incredible ability to focus his team, to focus those he's talking to on the things that matter right now but they're not the things that everyone else thinks are important, i.e. winning the football game. And saying that perfection is being able to look your friends in the eye and know that you did everything you could not to let them down, to define perfection that way, says so much about Gaines wanting to protect his players from all that nonsense, all of the noise from talk shows it says early on, you guys need to quit reading your press clippings. <laughs> he understands that he wants to protect them, but he can't protect them by shielding them, that this is a different kind of protection. It's a protection that says, I'm going to go out and fight with you. I'm going to go out and support with you. There's a, a story from this weekend, uh, Charlie Culberson, who's a, a pinch hitter for the Atlanta Braves, have been following their eventual... He, you're laughing at me but this is I'm, I'm going somewhere with this he he's a pinch hitter and he's a dad and a husband a father of two this is what I found out after the fact of what I'm about to tell you but he's trying to bunt late in a game a 1-1 tie with the brazen nationals he ends up taking a fastball to the face and gets taken off the field um, Fortunately enough he didn't have to have surgery he does have some fractures but there was an article that was written about how obviously everybody, including the Nationals pitcher and the Nationals themselves, wanted to make sure that he was okay. But to hear a rallying cry of his teammates, uh, Acuna Jr. saying, we love this guy. He's fantastic to have in the clubhouse. He's, he's like a parent. He's like an older brother. And this is the kind of team we are, that when one of our teammates goes down or gets hurt, We do everything in our power to fill in the gap, not just to win the game, but to represent him and to make sure that what he is doing on the field and his contributions are not lost. And of course, the the story goes on to say, yeah, in the next inning, then Acuna hit a base loaded double and then they just, Atlanta went to town and loaded up 10 runs or whatever. I don't know if I'm going to believe all that, but I do believe the fact that When you're with a team for that long, 160 plus games a year, they become your family. They become your comrade in arms. And sports allows you the ability to bond in a way that not a lot of other things do. It's hard for me to say that about coworkers that I work with 40 hours a week, but we're not in the trenches of something competitive and we're not throwing things out all on a literal field or a metaphorical field. And we're not pouring out our sweat and our blood and we're exhausted. There are times when there are deadlines and we're coming together and rallying together. But there's something about being part of a team that makes that more valuable and more meaningful. And Gaines, I think, is the central figure. I think if he had not been the central focus, this team would have crumbled. This team would have caved after Booby Miles had gotten hurt. They needed somebody to be able to say, where do we go from here? And I think if Mike Winchell hadn't stepped up, it would have been okay. And I think he would have found a way to say, life's going to go on. But I think more than anything, Gaines wanted the success for them as much as he wanted it for himself. And that's something that you don't see a lot as a coach that celebrates the success of his players beyond his own, you know, in a world where we have college sports and this pressure to say, Hey, you know, players need to get paid just like coaches do because you know, that likeness and all these other things, it's difficult to, to rally around that. But I think that's why I like high school sports the way I do, because it feels a lot more like there's, there's more to lose. There's more of a level playing field. Yes. A coach is still being paid, but when it comes to West Texas, he's under as much pressure as the players are And when a player goes down and that player is your anchor, wow, that is a big deal. And for a coach to deal with the things that he does, you've got to regroup. And he did a fantastic job of being able to do that.
1: I would agree. And I think that what it reminds me of is what I was saying earlier, that we don't know what these coaches are doing behind the scenes. I saw some great clips of Arkansas's coach, football coach, who's But under plenty of scrutiny, because we got a huge contract, and we gave it to him, and we gave the defensive coordinator a huge contract a couple years ago, and the results have not been there, and this past week, we started to see some signs, at least on one side of the ball, of progress. And I got to see them celebrate after the fact, and I got to see his motivating words to them, and it's helpful because what we don't know is how much of that we don't see, right? Like there could be coaches all over the country that are motivating, et cetera, just like coach games that are having an impact on the lives of their players, but they're not winning football games and they won't get the press. They won't be talked about. They'll get fired and they'll move on. But if they help those kids lives, then that's what's important. And I love, that's what I love about Coach Gaines It's not that he's a great strategical, strategical is that a word? A great, you know, strategic mind in football, but that he, like you said, he cares about the kids first. And one thing that I wanted to point out, cause we were talking about the halftime speech. I love the way that this is shot again, the whole movie, but like this particularly, this whole halftime bounces back and forth between. Permian and Dallas Carter and up until this point like we we we're kind of we're getting some some vibes that Dallas Carter's dirty they're not that great they're not nice you know they they potentially are there's racial things in play about where they're going to play the game and you know they've got a chip on their shoulder and yet in this moment man I loved it because we got to see just like Permian is in that locker room rallying trying to get ready and motivated to go play the second half and win a game Dallas Carter's doing the same thing and I didn't I mean their their coach is not bad he's not mean he's not Kilmer he's motivating them and it both of them end with the team in prayer giving the doing the Lord's Prayer together and it's like it bounces back and forth and oh my gosh I mean I just I loved it because part of me was like Getting the realization that, you know, yes, I'm rooting for Permian to win this game, but there are kids on the other side of that field that earned their spot to be here, too, that want it just as bad as the kids on the team that I like. And why do my kids deserve it? You know, and their kids don't deserve it. And they're going to be heartbroken if they lose. And their careers are going to be impacted. And for some reason, just the way that this was shot really affected me and helped me remember that and I thought it was special because it it let me go into the second half realizing like I'm rooting for Permian to win this game but Dallas Carter is in the same situation and we may not be following them but by getting the scenes of them in the locker room getting ready the same way you know their coach is motivating them and trying to help them give their best on the field as well and I just thought that was a really great thing for Berg to to add in there
0: Well, I think what he does, he levels the playing field in things that would otherwise become the central focus of a movie, like the rivalry with Midland Lee. It's mentioned, it's played out, but it's not the center of the movie. The competition and the championship with Dallas Carter, yes, it's the end of the movie, but it's not the reason the movie exists. We're not told early on, hey, if we do this, Dallas Carter is going to be who we eventually have to to play. That was never the focus and having a locker room scene, which rhythmically is just engrossing. It's so cool to see the juxtaposition with these two teams and how they motivate each other. Even within the Permian locker room, you have the assistant coaches juxtaposed against Christian who is preaching. He's doing his thing And so you have all this encouragement coming from all these different places. And so as an audience, you're getting to a place of saying, high school football is intense anywhere you go. And I'm not out to find an antagonist here. I'm out to support those that I came in with, which is Permian. Like you said, like you, I wanted Permian to win because this is who we've lived with for two hours. This is who the story is about. It's not about Dallas Carter. It's not about Midland Lee. It's about coach Gaines. It's about Booby miles. It's about Mike Winchell. It's about Don and these other players and other folks that are part of this team on and off the field. And I think that was by design because Peter Berg didn't want that to be the focus. He wanted what we got to be the focus. And it, it made for a different kind of drama because it, made us root for a team rather than against another one. Now, there were some great moments where you wanted to kind of hate Dallas Carter, particularly the end zone celebrations with the, the faux, you know, photo shoot and that kind of stuff. And even the, the smirk on the head coach's face as he's sucking that dumb, dumb pop. I mean, those were, those were moments I think that helped kind of give us that antagonistic vantage point to kind of motivate. But That was never the drive. And I liked the fact that that happened because it made it feel more authentic. It didn't feel like it was a, a villain that we were up against, but really it was, it was about Permian and them overcoming the odds that were set before them. One of the odds that obviously takes place is the kind of the key factor of the movie. And that's Booby Miles going down. His character (laughs) grows on me the more I watch the movie, he is every bit of confident and arrogant wrapped up into one. And there are times when I don't know if he's one or the other, but I think that he exhibits what it's like for someone to know how talented they are and to feel like nothing can stop them. And up to that point, Aaron, Nothing did. And what we're given, the information we're given is that he's had cupcake wins for the last three seasons or the last two seasons or however long. And there are these pockets of, of moments where he is called out for that. Like Billingsley says, does he ever shut his mouth? Or I think he says at the beginning, man, his mouth has just gotten bigger and bigger every year. Uh, Winchell one of my favorite moments with him is when he's talking to Mike and he's like, Hey Mike, you're going to come out to Southern California and hang out with me. Um, I can introduce you to some really great comedians cause Mike doesn't smile. And he says, I'm going to get you to smile. Maybe I'll get out one of these comedians like Eddie Murphy or maybe even Bill Cosby. And he does his <laughs> pretty I mean, good. some jello. Yeah. It's a pretty good Bill Cosby impression. Yeah, it is. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, that's pretty funny. And he goes, Oh look at that, I got Mike to smile. Mike's actually smiling. Wah! But I think what what we get is a, a character that mean we know something's gonna happen to him because it's almost a little too over the top. But I'd like to believe that this was who he was. He was unapologetic about his ability, he was unapologetic about his future, and nothing was gonna stop Booby Miles except Booby Miles. And he would tell you that in that exact way, because he loved talking in the third person, which further exhibited that sense of confidence that he had.
1: This is another like complete departure from varsity blues. Like the characters of Booby versus why am I blanking on his name now? Because that's what happens. But his equivalent character, Wendell, um, they're played so differently. Like Wendell's also the star running back of the team who gets injured. Right. But He's quiet. He just does his job on the field, wants to like not talk to anybody, just kind of goes through the motion. He's part of the group. He's, he's friendly to everybody. He's not cocky at all. He does not have this level of outward, um, you know, self uh, praise that, that Booby does. It's just really interesting to see how completely different they're portrayed. The other thing about
0: Booby is that. He, his guardian is his uncle, LV. We're introduced to him pretty early on. And LV functions not only as his uncle and his guardian, but pretty much as his agent. And during pregames, he's basically hyping him up to all these great college scouts. He can run. He can pass. He could make you cereal or walk your dogs. What if you wanted him to? And watching it this time around, I was, I was watching their relationship and watching how LV essentially supported Booby in this journey that that they were on together uh, there are some really quiet moments with him and his uncle where you wonder if he's making the right decisions for Booby because he's got stake in this as well and it got me wondering had LV not been a part of his life had Booby had another parent or another guardian do you think that he would have had the success that he did as a player.
1: I don't know that LV has anything to do with Booby's success, to be honest with you. Now, we don't know from what the movie tells us. We don't know if LV is the one that is sending in, you know, information to colleges or... But it is completely conceivable that regardless of what a parent does... An athlete with Booby's talent would be recognized on the national stage, would be getting scholarship offers, despite the fact that he can barely even read, and doesn't need an, an uncle or a parent in his West Texas little town to promote him. So I don't, I don't actually think that he's necessarily responsible for Booby's success. I think Booby's got natural talent, and that Booby was gonna be better because Booby has the natural talent, and He has that desire to be great, great. And so when he goes out on the field, he's just better than everybody else. And that's, I mean, he didn't work out, Patrick. Like, it's interesting because the coach even kind of tells him, he's like, oh, you know, you worked for this. But we get a scene where Booby very, very clearly is not working out. Mike's like, what? You're leaving? You didn't lift. And he's like, I don't need to lift. I don't need to do all that. Right? So I don't necessarily think LV has an impact on his success any more or less than another parent would have. I think that Booby's situation, um, his drive and the importance for him of getting a scholarship and being able to play pro ball or move on in the world of football and cash in on his athleticism is indicative of what so many kids just like him experience going out of high school athletics, where... They're poor. He's living with an uncle. Their only ability for him to get a job because he has not poured himself into an education and caring about that is football. You know, Booby's real life story, Patrick, going into what happens after this movie is that he does end up in jail. Now, there's extenuating circumstances. He's not super violent criminal or anything like that. He actually ends up in prison because he's violating parole. Go figure gets pulled over on an illegal u-turn while violating parole and not checking in with his parole officer for some misdemeanor crimes and goes to prison on a felony i mean but that's what happens to people who have no other means to make a life for themselves right He a struggle big time and so i love how passionate lv is about wanting that for him but I don't think he's a good parent <laughs> because he puts that desire over the potential for booby to hurt himself further. Right. I, but I empathize and I understand it and it, it results their relationship results in what was darn near my connecting point for the film because I absolutely lose it. I legitimately am sitting here on the couch And I am overwhelmingly crying my eyes out when Booby gets in that car with LV after cleaning out his locker. After going in there and continuing to exude that fake confidence slash real confidence that you were talking about. Acting like everything's cool. And then he lets it out. And he just loses it. And he expresses the pain and the loss of what has happened and the fact that his life has forever changed. And in that moment, I love LV as a parent figure because he's comforting Booby, and he's there and they're crying together. And he's like, we're going to get through this, you know, and we're going to do it together. So the relationship is great. And I think it's really nice to see it because this is what athletes deal with. And it's not something that I could ever relate to, but it's nice for me to be able to
0: empathize with. There's a, there's a slant you could take with LV and saying that he's using booby to get something more in that conversation. As he's crying, he said, I wanted to get a house. Once we got to, once we got to the pros, once we got to the pros and you could take that one of two ways because early on in the movie, it was clear being the omniscient, People that we are but getting all the inside scoop from watching the movie, we know that there's a terror. And when Gaines talks to LV and he says, Are you okay with this? He goes, Oh yeah, 100%. 100%. Now he hesitates, but you could say that LV is being selfish. He's like, I'm not going to jeopardize the shot at this kid getting what he wants and ultimately what I want, but I think that's misunderstanding. I think what he sees is this is the path and we need to continue to go down whatever it takes. And I'm, I'm scared to give that up. I'm scared to say, no, he can't play and risk losing that. Granted, he gets hurt and he ends up losing it anyway. But I think LV has always been on team booby as it means to say, I don't know what the past is. I don't know where Booby's parents are, what happened, how he came into the adoption or whatever you want to call it of LV. But that conversation in the car where they break down and he comforts him solidifies the fact that I feel like they were both wanting to pursue this dream together. And that was a dream that got shattered and they both felt it because at no point did LV say, all right, well, what are we going to do now? No, he said we're gonna get through this. Like you said, we're gonna make it happen. There's a there's a small moment that I remember after the events of the the championship take place, and LV sitting on the the porch, Booby drives up with the Christmas tree, and you see him look over at LV, and he just kind of gives him a nod, and I don't think there was necessarily reconciliation or they're saying, yeah, everything's going to be okay. But I think they're both saying, you know, we're still here. We're still breathing. Life's going on. And it's one of those messy resolutions where we don't know what's going to happen because the truth is he doesn't have any other option. He and LV worked hard in this one area and the pessimists, could say, well, you should have focused on this grades. You should have focused on that. But the fact is, I don't know that I would if I had that much natural talent and my parent or my guardian said, let's go after this and let's work as hard as we can to do that. I don't think I would concern myself with that, especially if I weren't getting any kind of repercussions for not being good in school. He jokingly says near the beginning, you know, what kind of grades you get? I get all A's. I'm a football player. (laughs) And Yeah, we laugh at that, but there's some real truth to it. There's The importance of winning is so big in this school that teachers are willing to let that slide. It's what happened to Dallas Carter that they found out years later. They were letting players slide on their grades, giving them passing grades because of the importance to win. And so when you think about that, LV was just doing what he knew to be the right thing. What was going to be successful for Booby? It was a plus one for him at that point. I also don't think that in his position, again, not knowing what their background is, I don't know that he knew that he had another option or that there was another option. He saw something that could have been a sure thing, and and he went with it. And I think that that speaks to how much he cares about Booby, the fact that he stayed with him, the fact that he let him cry on his shoulder, and. I'd like to believe because I'm, uh, I'm writing this in the seams of the, of the script in my head that LV said, you need to go to the championship. You need to go with your team because they still love you. They still care about you. And seeing him get on the bus and seeing Gaines look at LV and kind of nod, I thought that was wonderful because he was still part of the team because his contributions didn't end when his career ended. He was still part of that, that heartbeat, part of that, that whole crew because they had worked hard together. And I think that when I look at him in comparison to the rest of the team, I wonder if, if there was a, a change in their morale. When he left, when he was no longer an active part of it, obviously they welcomed him getting on the bus, but did you, did you see anything or did you anticipate any kind of morale shift when, when he was no longer part of that?
1: Um, I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think we see enough to answer that question. To be honest, I don't believe that booby is a super hype guy for the team. Boobie's a super hype guy for himself. That's all we see in the beginning. So I don't have any evidence to go by in the film itself to tell me that when he goes down, the team loses anything because of him, because of what he does. Now, they lose motivation because they have relied on him and they don't have confidence in themselves. I don't think he gives them confidence in themselves. I think they believe... That Booby's going to save the day. And so they don't have to worry about it. They can just go out there and do their thing. He's coasting, right? And then Booby's gone, and they can't coast anymore. They gotta put in the work and they gotta earn it on their own. And so in that regard, yes, he his loss affects them, but it's not because of something he does intentionally. I do love like right before that scene where he goes and gets in the car and cries when he's cleaning out his locker. And everybody's just staring, looking at him. I mean, it is a phenomenal piece of acting by Derek Luke, honestly. Like, the way that he is trying to be self-assured in that moment, but you know what's going on behind those eyes, and you can see it. You can feel it. And the guys know it. The guys watching him know it. But he just goes over and he says, what y'all looking at? Play your asses off. Win state. And I think that that definitely was motivating to them in that moment, toward the end when he finally is kind of coming to terms with his injury, that he's not going to be there. And then him showing up on the game for crutches. I actually wrote down in my notes in all capital letters, "Booby is back on crutches for the game. Yes. You know, it's the same thing we see like with Lance on the sideline of RC blues on crutches and Wendell coming out on crutches. I think that for players in any sport, that is always going to be a motivational thing to see your teammate who no longer can be out there in the field, who who just was or has been for so much of your season or whatever, standing there very visibly injured, cheering you on saying, you got this, even though I'm not out there to help, you got this, I'm here with you. I think that there is something definitely motivating about that.
0: Mojo even. There's some good mojo
1: there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Definitely.
0: A little bit of trivia during the halftime speech the real Booby Miles was standing next to the actor Booby Miles. You could see him a couple of times in there. So a little, little tidbit of information there for you. Mike Winchell, I think is affected by this more than anything. And this is, I think where Friday night lights and varsity blues are the most similar, the big player, the big contributor goes down and now the quarterback has to step up and be the man. The way this is handled between these two movies is drastically different. And the story arc is drastically different because this doesn't become Mike Winchell's story. Again, Peter Berg does a fantastic job of keeping things balanced, keeping things level because this movie wasn't about booby. There are events that took place and actions that happened and choices that were made that led to the beginning, middle, and end of this movie. And that's a terrible way to describe that. But that's what this movie has done. It was never about one individual. And I really do believe that was by design because of the fact that the Permian Panthers were a team. And when you look at Mike Winchell, there's the moment at the drive-in, the Sonic, I'm going to call it. It wasn't the Sonic, but it was the hangout. Chavez says, you only have to do one thing. Your job is to exist for those two seconds between when you get the ball and when you hand it off to booby. And then you can just live free at that point. That's a misquote, obviously. But that's essentially what he was saying. And that doesn't seem to motivate or make Mike feel better. I think Lucas Black is an underrated actor. I think it's great that in every performance that I've seen him in, he is unapologetic about his great southern accent. And this role fits him perfectly, not just because of that southern accent, but because he he's very pensive, Mike Winchell is a pensive character, and I think Lucas Black plays him to a T. When they go to the party, and he's getting hit on by that girl, this is another thing that's very much a deviation from from Varsity Blues is we get the celebratory excitement of being at a party. He is completely, as the quarterback of the team, he is completely uncomfortable. And we go from a girl hitting on him to the end of them having sex because that was never the point. But what we see after that is him looking in the mirror and going essentially, who are you? Who is this guy? I mean, he is insecure trying to figure out what's going on here. At one point he's asked during a recruiting meeting, which I think is great. If you, some of the shots that that Berg throws in as the little snacks on the table, like this is, this is what it's like to be at a recruiting meeting for a small town for someone who's not really going to get a major like D one scholarship. He's got little, little wingers and stuff like that. It's not like you're you're big spread anyway. Uh, just little things like that that I thought were great, but he's asked at the recruiting meeting, he says, if he loves playing football and he says kind of reluctantly, yes. But is that true? And I think that's the first moment that we get, Aaron, where Mike sees this as a job. He sees this as not even a means to an end, but just as a, an uncomfortable ride that he is on. And I wonder if you picked up on any of that.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, like you said, it's a great performance and it's very bluntly stated there when he, is clearly not answering yes. It's yes dot dot dot, and he's not having fun in that moment. He's not enjoying it. Just like John the Moxon and Varsity Blues, it takes time for them to start enjoying the game and playing the game their way, um, and and for the right reasons. And even then, he's not all about that what next step is right his mom's pushing that on him but he's not constantly thinking about that i saw a quote in a letterbox review and i don't know who it was so i can't really credit it but i thought their description of this is perfect and they said the movie could be summed up as this football as an inescapable never-ending nightmare forced upon children that's what mike's going through he and everybody else to some extent but specifically him he's sort of got this nightmare scenario where he's got talent in this thing and at one point he probably was playing and having fun moxon and varsity blues says you know yeah it was fun when we were in Wee, <laughs> and it was just to go out there and throw the ball around with friends but now it's like it matters and everybody cares mike's not all about that pressure You know, he doesn't want the fame. He doesn't want the girls throwing themselves at him. He doesn't want to be bothered by that. And so I'm sure he's projecting and realizing like, my gosh, college is just going to be an exponential level of this. So why would I be hyped about doing that? So I don't think that he loves football. I think that it feels very much like a thing he does because he's been doing it and because he's good at it. And it reminds me of my son. And I don't remember if we had this conversation exactly when we talked about varsity blues, but similarly where, you know, you play something for 10 years competitively. And at some point you're like, man, I'm just going through the motions at this point. And I need a break or I need to be, find a new reason to want to do this at this level. Um, and I, I think that parents are trying to do what's best for their kids. And it's tragic To some extent, we're going to talk about Don as well, but LV before Mike, it's parental figures who want to see their kids succeed and have this life out of West, West Texas that is not the same thing that they've experienced. They want more for their children, and each of them is in their own ways trying to help their kids get there, trying to force their kids to get there, and that's where that never any nightmare forced upon children comes from his mom sitting there that opening scene like telling him to read you know plays and doing all this stuff he's not got any interest in that he doesn't want to do that you know he'll think about that when he gets to the field yeah (laughs) and it's too bad because it's really heartbreaking to think about all the kids in real life that mike goes that are like mike i i think of the The players in this film as ciphers for so many everyday people who like maybe go to my kid's high school football team right now, you know, whose parents are the ones pushing them to do this and that that aren't really enjoying or living their life the way that they would best enjoy. And I think it all comes full circle, honestly, with Mike. I think we know this to be true because the final shot of the film is Mike smiling. And what is Mike doing?
0: Throwing that football.
1: Throwing a football to who? The a next group of
0: kids. To the next, the gen- next generation. Yeah.
1: But it's a backyard. It's, it's in a field. He's just throwing a football up for a bunch of kids to catch. And it's like, to me, I'm like, that's what Mike Winchell likes. That's what Mike Winchell loves. Not necessarily being out on the, the field with all the lights on him.
0: The, the thing that I love about that shot, about that last moment, is metaphorically speaking, he is literally... I say literally as I say metaphorically, he's metaphorically releasing that stress, that weight that's been on him for however many years. If it's gotten heavier and heavier, he's actually throwing it and saying, here, I'm, I can release this. I'm done. And he releases it and I guess gets it back for a year before he, you know, eventually just (laughs) lets it go for good being it, being at Baylor. But in this moment, I think it's fantastic to see him smile and to see that he actually is letting that go and experiencing what you said, that freedom to be able to enjoy the game, just to enjoy it because there is no pressure. There's nothing at stake at that moment. It's just one guy throwing a football to a bunch of smiling kids, which is what he was experiencing probably when he was younger. I think all parents depicted in this way, have a very myopic sense of what their kids need. And I believe that that's driven by geography to an extent. These parents, these guardians, all they know is the world of Odessa. All they know is the world of small town, Permian life in West Texas, whose rival is Midland Lee, which is not that big. Christian was telling me, I said, how far is that? And she said, well, it's like Benton Bryant. And you would know what that's what that's about, Aaron. And she said, well, no, I'm going to take that back. It's probably like more like Benton Malvern. You're talking about 30, 45 minutes. But there were no other schools that were as competitive as these two. And so that's why you lived for Friday night and that particular Friday night. Because it was what made your world. Accomplishing beating that team. Um, looking forward to that. Hearing the chatter on the radio of what. The coach is going to do and how the team's going to perform and what they looked at, what they looked like the week before. And for, for Mike, I think what Lucas Black does so well is he visibly shows the weight of this dual pressure of being a quarterback that now has to perform and also someone that doesn't want to let go of taking care of his mom. And that conversation that you mentioned that Gaines had with him in his home, is so pivotal because Gaines is essentially saying you have got to release that. You can't let both of these things weigh you down. And I almost think that Gaines is saying, I recognize those two things that are holding you back or pushing you down. I can't tell you that the weight of being the quarterback is going to be able to get me lighter. What I can tell you is that you can release this. So it's at least it feels lighter. So you only have one thing. And seeing Mike just break down and cry because he doesn't want to let her go, he doesn't want to lose that responsibility. I think in that way, he was saying he doesn't want to lose what he knows is a for sure thing. Taking care of his mom, he'll always be able to do that, according to him. But even in the recruiting meeting, he was like, "How far is that? How far drive is is that school?" And she doesn't care. She's like, "Are you offering? Are you offering?" So it's almost like this weird opposite. He's concerned about her. So it's almost like he's the parent being kind of the helicopter parent for her, but she's ready for him to fly. Now, what's in it for her? I have no idea. I mean, she doesn't see him as a booby miles. The school that recruiting him is not a D1 school. This isn't Alabama or USC or Miami. This is a small, probably D3 school like Washita or Henderson State University but for her it's a big deal because i think she wants him to get out and i think if she were awake when gaines was talking to him she'd probably get right in his face and say yeah you don't need to stay here and take care of me i'm fine again we don't get a lot of the past of these characters we don't get booby's past we don't get mike's past we can inf- but we can infer that there's some brokenness in come- when it comes to family we don't know if he's talking to his sister or his brother No, he's talking to some sibling because he refers to whoever it is saying, well, she's your mom too. And so I I don't know what's happening with that, but we don't need to know all the information. What we need to know is the fact that he's on his own with her. And as Lucas Black just embraces this character, we see him grow little by little and man, Outside of that last shot, my favorite, favorite moment with him is when he gets out. It's the very last play of the game, and he's yelling the play. He said, this is it, and he goes, I love all y'all. I love all y'all. Oh, Oh, my gosh.
1: I'm I'm crying the whole last 20 minutes of the movie.
0: I mean, (laughs) because you believe that, that he does. He loves every single one of them. Yep. And I think that that combined, or maybe that in addition to that last moment, was the beginning of him releasing that weight because he knew that after this there was nothing. That was the championship game. Nothing was going to happen after that. He's a senior and he literally could leave it all on the field. And he did. I think seeing him at the goal line, just with his head down, I got to believe there's a small part of him knowing that he was completely disappointed. There's a small part of him that was like, thank God (laughs) it's over. I can breathe out again. And I think that was a fitting, I guess they end to his character, but a fitting resolution to, to his character arc. Well, Don Billingsley is our fourth focal point. And Garrett Hedlund, I think, does a phenomenal job of portraying what I think we would eventually compare to uh, our own little Texas Forever from the Friday Night Lights TV series. But. His relationship with his dad, I think, is what is depicted in a lot of movies where you have football is life. The rest are just details when it comes to father-son relationships. It's a broken home, obviously. We don't have a, a mom. We have, I guess, revolving girlfriends with with his dad, played by Tim McGraw, who, oh my gosh, <laughs> I didn't think Tim McGraw could be such a jackass, but yet here he is. But we have Billingsley coming out, and at the very beginning, we see him just get completely berated, like we mentioned before. Why do you think there's this pressure? There's so much pressure. Not just the general, I guess, football pressure from from a parent, but why is there so much pressure on Billingsley to be so successful?
1: Oh, because his dad won. I mean, that's the main reason, Sure. obviously, is that his dad won a championship, and his dad takes a lot of pride in that championship that he won and he wants his son to have that he wants his son to experience that and so like I was saying earlier he is propelling his son towards that goal that he has for him because he believes it is the best thing for his son and it's tragic it's not right to beat your kid to abuse your kid verbally. But I think that's what makes it intriguing and and interesting and important to see is that this is something people struggle with, um, is the abuse. And, you know, to some extent, I believe he's struggling with alcoholism. We don't know what else is in the past about why the mom's gone, but clearly he's been through the ringer. And I think that he become starts to become the product of his dad right like that that whole system of or cycle of kids who are abused becoming abusers starts to look like it could play out like don has anger issues and you see why he might be like that but it's really powerful when he's trying to he just wants his son to succeed. And and it's hard because part of me is like, you know, kind of going off on your kid about the fact that he can't hold on to the ball in some level might be reasonable. Now, like you said, tying him up with duct tape and putting a ball in his hands and then trying to beat it out of him while his naked girlfriend is sitting on the couch is probably over the top. <laughs> Definitely over the top. It's really important because I think it's one of the only things that he feels he can relate to his son about as well. And so it's something that he can share with him. And so for, for Charles, the dad, you know, his identity has become Don's success now. Um, and that's a, an awful place to live, right? His dad needs therapy. His dad needs help. And it makes me really sad for Don, uh, to be going through this. And like you said, I think that what you pointed out earlier about the coach and that scene is really, really spot on as well, because you're right. Had coach interacted and stopped what was going on, it would have probably resulted in a worst case scenario for Don at home. Um And coach knew better than to do that. So I love that we get to see a progression in Charles's character. Throughout the film. And I think without that, it wouldn't work. I would not be okay with watching it, to be honest. Because it's a great performance. But if I'm going to see somebody who abuses someone else, I need to see something that triggers a positive change in that person.
0: I would agree. And there's a a line when just before he goes onto the field to, to wail on Billingsley, essentially after he fumbles and somebody in the in the crowd says you sure that's your kid or making some comment about the fact that that can't be him like he doesn't say this but it's essentially like you sure he's not adopted and there is a sense of embarrassment that comes from that and i look at their relationship and i question why 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 does billingsley continue to forgive his dad you know there's a there are two or three moments all involved in the car actually you know anytime anytime the car is involved it seems like his dad is saying something rude or just completely wrong to him and he says just get in the car dad just get in the car dad and the moment that sticks out to me is when his dad is Drunk in the back seat, breaks the windows, takes his ring off and says, Do you see that? Or do you feel that? And he just pokes him with the ring and then he throws the ring out. And then Billings says, Dad, what are you doing? And he goes and he hunts for it, which by the way, you could not find a ring and all that. There's just no way. I'm going to throw that out and say that's for. Yeah, that's for showmanship at that point. That's not historically accurate. (laughs) That would be impossible without a metal detector, but he, he looks around and he's finding it and his dad is just laying on the car in the rain or in this drizzle. And we find out later in the next scene, his dad chugging that big jug of chocolate milk saying, I'll get the car fixed, which is kind of his way of saying, I'm sorry for what I did. But then he goes back and he says, I just don't know what's you know, why you, why you won't listen or why you just, you just don't get it, do you? But what I love about that scene is that it sounds like he's about to just go off on him again and he sort of does, but he says after that, essentially, I just want the best for you. These are the moments, these are the moments that you remember you're, you're making memories and I, I'll be damned if you miss out on that. You don't miss out on that. And then Hedlund gets up after he takes a spit, puts the ring on the counter, and there's this there's this shot where he leaves, he stops, his silhouettes in the background, his dad looks, you don't see you don't see Billings' face. He pauses and then he takes off. And I think in that moment it starts that reconciliation that you talk about, that change really starts to take shape. But man, I struggle with knowing the outcome. I, I struggle less. But in those moments, I struggle with why Billingsley continues to go back and forgive his dad, why he continues to give him chance after chance after chance. And I didn't know if that was something that you struggled with watching this or if that's something that, that, that you see as as a point of tension that is is tough to reconcile.
1: Why he continually forgives his dad.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, we know the outcome and obviously it it ends up being nice. But if I only saw those moments, I'd be like, dude, you need to get out. You need to get out of that house.
1: Because that's not how abuse works. Um, especially within someone you love. I Mm -hmm. mean, it's, I think it's just indicative of what a real life abusive situation is like, where this is your father. You don't have a mom to go to right now. This is what you got. And, you love that person or you love what that person can be at their best. And it hurts you. I'm sure hurts him constantly, but ultimately he does want to make his dad proud and he doesn't want his dad to hate him. He wants his dad to think highly of him and to be, you know, proud. Like I said, be proud of him, be fond of him. And, So I I get it. I mean, I I can understand why he wouldn't just up and leave uh, and disrupt his entire life and his entire world in order to do that, right? It would change everything for him. So I think that it's, it's a bit scary because when you see people who have been abused, like we can't let Charles off the hook because what he does is not acceptable and we would never want to encourage someone like Don to just stick around and take it no matter what the outcome ultimately is. If there's reconciliation and if there's a change, then that's great. But that doesn't mean you have to just take it in the meantime. Uh, But I think that he wants his dad to be proud of him just like every son would my, my son wouldn't tell me the truth about his feelings for years because he didn't want to let me down, didn't want to disappoint me. And it was based on his assumptions even. Like he thought that I cared so much about some soccer game in, tw- you know, his 12-year-old season or whatever. Like I don't care, but he, but my actions might have given him that indication and he doesn't want to let me down. It can be as simple as not brushing your teeth. Failed to brush his teeth before he went to bed and then lied about it. Because he knew that my face, I was going to be disappointed. I was going to be frustrated with him. And he doesn't want me to feel that way. Because he's going to feel like he's a disappointment. And I see that how that would project onto Don in this same scenario.
0: Yeah, spot on. Real talk. I'm dealing with that with my son right now. He's starting to lie. And it's so heartbreaking. Because he's a great kid. Because he's got all these wonderful characteristics. But he seems to be lying just at will, like even by the on the smallest things. Hey, did you brush your teeth? Yeah. Did you brush your teeth? No. And I I think to myself, why? Why are you lying to me? And I start thinking about that kind of stuff. He's at a point. I think I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, where he doesn't know whether or not he wants to play soccer anymore. And Christian and I are kind of conflicting his parents right now because I want to tell him that's okay. And Let's get through the year. Let's get through committing this commitment that you've had. But if you're not happy playing, I don't want to force you to do that because I don't want to end up being this guy to his Billingsley. And, and my wife isn't being Tim McGraw in this case. She's not forcing him to play. We have a misunderstanding in our conversations because if he wants to play something else, I want him to play. I want him to stay active. But I was the guy that did Little League and was terrible at it. And I played basketball and was terrible at it, Both those things I'm still terrible at. So what did I do? I picked up sports that didn't involve teams. I picked up taekwondo. I picked up tennis. And I was okay with those, but I enjoyed them a lot more because it really came down to me and another guy either kicking each other in the face or hitting each other with tennis balls. And for that, I was a lot more satisfied. Same thing with running. I enjoy running mostly because I'm not competing against anybody else but myself. And I think about that with with my son and the psychologist in me is trying to analyze, okay, why is it that he doesn't like it right now? He's so good. I don't want to squash that. So how do I encourage him to keep playing if he's good at it, but not make him feel like he has to do it and all these things. And And my wife is dealing with the same thing because we want him to be active. We want him to enjoy it. But we also, from her standpoint, she doesn't want him to make excuses that, might be just those. He may just not like one of the kids that he plays against because he's intimidating. He may not like the fact that he has referees at his games now, who, by the way, are not that great. All these factors could be playing a part. And so as a parent, I have to be able to work through that and support him because I want him to know at the end of the day, I'm proud of him. At the end of the day, I want him to love what he does from an, art point of view, from a sports point of view, and that I'm always going to be there to support that. And those are times that I, right now, I feel like I'm failing as a parent, not because I'm vicariously trying to say, you're a winner, you're a winner, don't drop the damn ball. I'm saying, how do I encourage those things? So I don't necessarily say I like the struggle, but I understand it. And I know that I don't want to be that overbearing parent that makes my child feel like winning or playing a sport until he's completely unhappy with it is going to make me happy
1: yeah i mean i think that the issue here is that parents in west texas in the 1980s and maybe still today and probably parents to some extent in other places with other issues you know what you know charles believes that success in life is going to come from football field success in high school and it So he wants that for his son. And so he is doing whatever he can do to try and make that happen. Because in his world, it's over if you don't have success. Like like he says, this is it. You got this one chance. You're never going to get it again. So he's projecting what he knows to be his experiences. And so it's it's coming from that good place, like good intentions, but obviously not the best methods.
0: That is for sure. Well, do you have anything else before we drop into our connecting points?
1: No, I, you know, I just think it's awesome to compare these two, and I really would love to see even like a book or something that just completely showed like this is this character in Varsity Blues like a chart. <laughs> you know, this is what this character is, and I'd be really curious to to hear from the screenwriters of Varsity Blues about why the changes were made. Because this is the biopic, like you said, and Varsity Blues very clearly is not taking the biopic route. It's a story that is rock and roll based on the same events and the same characters. I do find it really intriguing, though, that they win in Varsity Blues, right? Versus losing in this one. And so, I, I mean, I don't know.
0: I, <laughs> I think it's, I think it's fair to say that you could boil down the comparison and maybe the, the influence into three letters and that's M T V. Yeah.
1: One thing I do want to say about this is I love how much of this movie is on the football field. Mm-hmm. There is so much action and I think that that's important. I was saying there's less drama in it and that's why it's because we spend so much time actually on the field in this movie and I love that about it. And I think that because it's so dynamic and it gets you in the huddle and makes you feel like you're on the field with these guys, you really do relate to them. I love the end of this film and how we essentially, because we call a penalty on the final play of the game, we get to have our cake and eat it too. It's brilliant because we get a hero play moment from both Billingsley and Winchell. Instead of having to pick or choose, I just think it's really cool design. I don't know if that's how it really went down or not, but from a viewing standpoint, I'm really keyed in and locked into those moments dramatically, and I think it they did it really well.
0: That even that playing leveled playing field balanced. It's yeah, Peter Berg is a is a master. I also want to give a little shout out to the soundtrack. Explosions in the Sky is the name of the band that scored. The movie, they do this post rock kind of flavor, this experimental type stuff, which is very unconventional. Like it is, it's an unconventional sound, but it works really well for this. It, the TV series uses it as a base. Obviously explosion in the sky doesn't do the soundtrack for the TV series. I kind of wish they would because I love their sound. And it was one of the things that on the, my first viewing, stood out to me as how different the soundtrack was. It obviously wasn't the rock and roll soundtrack, but it wasn't a traditional James Horner score or Alan Silvestri score. It evoked a sense of quiet, slice of life type of flavor, and, and it was great. It was perfect for this. I, I listened to it a lot over and over again whenever uh, after I'd first seen the the movie. Well, I think we could both say that the movie itself is a connecting point, as we say to a lot of our favorite movies, but we did pick out one and it doesn't surprise me that it's the same one. So Aaron, do you want to reveal the secret?
1: Yeah, sure. I mentioned earlier that there's like a couple moments in the movie where I sob uncontrollably. One being when I almost said Wendell, go figure. Uh, one being when Booby gets in the car with LV and cries, and the other one is this moment, and that is because of the lead up that we have in the final game and everything that's been taking place, because we get to see Don's incredible play with a hurt shoulder, breaking tackles like crazy, reminiscent of an Arkansas tight end this past weekend, and Essentially scoring a game-winning touchdown, only to have it called back, but that effort that he puts in because of all of these things, watching his dad, and because of that conversation that we just had about how important it is for his dad to see him succeed, and what he believes is winning. The end of this movie, when he goes up to his son, and there's no words said, At least none that we hear. And we see him put his ring on Don's finger and hug him. I lose it. No speech. No clever witty line. It's better than a win. No trophy could ever amount to the feeling and the success that Don will have in that moment. Because of the love and the pride that his dad is showing in him. And I love how it's just this quick shot. Like our connecting point maybe literally is less than 30 seconds. If that, maybe it's like 10, 15, 20 seconds. But it doesn't try to sell us on this moment being an absolution of Charles's sins. It's a step in my opinion. It's a moment of connection with his son. It's a moment where he gets to show his pride. He gets to show his son that he loves him. And it just reminds me that people's behavior doesn't change completely overnight, but it's one act at a time. And I feel like that's what Charles is doing in this moment. And I just, I break completely thinking about the impact that that's going to have on Don in the here and now, and potentially like for the rest of his life, how meaningful this simple simple seemingly act could be
0: very symbolic for sure when I see that moment and it's (laughs) the cry moment for me is not the initial hug but it's the shot of them in the background with the rest of the team and the just gathering around uh taking a knee because you have This guy, this dad in front of a whole slew of people who probably aren't looking at him, but who metaphorically has all eyes on him and he's hugging his son and he's telling him without saying a word that he's proud of him. And I think that at that moment, they, they're both coming to a a common ground. Billingsley knows that he's never going to get that championship ring but that it doesn't matter because he wanted his dad's love and appreciation more. And his dad realized that he was never going to get that championship ring, but that's not what he wanted that he wanted. So it's like this moment where they realize that they both understand what, what they both want. And for that one moment, they absolutely are in sync with it. And it's wow. beautiful because like you said, we don't know what happens afterwards. I mean, the the title afterwards says he's still close with his father. I mean, we can only assume that that's a good thing. Um, But having that start, having that, that moment be a starting place for them to say, we have that common ground. We can, we can begin a reconciliation. And really just like with, Winchell throwing that football, Billys he doesn't have any pressure anymore. His career is over as a high school football player. He literally cannot win a state championship, I guess, unless he fails his classes or something. But let's assume that that's not the case. And I think for him and his dad, they both realized, you know what? We can't change what's happened. Game's over. Your high school career is over. Okay. We need to find something else. Not that I can berate you on, but that you and I can celebrate together. What that is, I'm, I don't really need to speculate because the moment itself, I think validates it. It's beautiful. It absolutely is beautiful. Krisha, she was watching the movie with me and she looked over and she goes, are you crying? And then she said, there's no crying in baseball. No, she didn't say that. She, she, I rarely ever cry. And I said, oh, this movie breaks me every time I watch it. And this moment is what does it. And it feels kind of like a cheat, because like, well, it's the end of the movie. He'll, yeah, of course it is, but no, it's not. It's it's it really is. I think a culmination of all that pressure that these four individuals were were feeling, and how they were all exhaling, and that that picture I think was an exhale for all of us as an audience to release that pressure that we were feeling watching the movie. It really is beautiful. Well, that does it for us. We made it through without crying. This is great, man. I totally love this conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed it too. Feel free to continue to stick with us this week as we're bringing you a new FF Plus where we cover a couple of new things. We'll be talking about Barry. Sorry that we weren't able to do that last week. We're going to re-up and uh, give you a good conversation on Barry along with a, a couple other things. Be sure to tune in for that. And then our next main episode coming up next week is... A conversation about Aaron's probably most highly anticipated movie of the year, Ad Astra. I'm looking forward to having that conversation with you, Aaron. Thanks again for a great conversation, and we will talk soon.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you.